Hello, and you are listening to Scar Joe A Go Go, the podcast where I chronicle and dissect the films of Scarlett Johansson in chronological order. My name is Luke, and this week we're talking about a good woman. We're here to learn, not just to yarn, for our most loved celebrity. We'll watch the screen, what can we glean from her career trajectory? Cause she'd prefer if you'd refer to her as Miss Johansson. Don't be a jerk to Miss Johansson. Respect her work. She starts off really small and then she grows, she grows, she grows, she grows. Let's see how far she goes. Scar Joe go. Batman! has virtually nothing to do with this movie or podcast, but when Gotham City is threatened by a psychotic clown or a man obsessed with riddles or obsessed with penguins or hats or clocks or calendars, uh, they shine a signal in the sky to summon their protector, the Batman, the Dark Knight detective, a symbol that strikes fear into the hearts of evil men. A man, a Batman who is willing to dangle the mentally ill over balconies for the sanctity of his city. And similarly, when director Mike Barker needed a symbol that would incite passion and desire in the hearts of horny ye olde socialites, he called upon budding young actress Scarlett Johansson. For who else, dear listener, could bring the beauty, the charm, the naivety, the sheer presence to a role in which uh, she is more treasured and sought after by men uh, than the lost Ark of the Covenant. So uh, Mike Barker, he shined some sort of scarlet signal into the sky and uh, brought her to this film. Um, Unfortunately, it also summoned Helen Hunt, who in this film kind of looks like Two-Face, assuming he was uh, fucked up on both sides. I'm just just kidding, Helen Hunt, you're great. It's just, uh, I'm not that mad about you. Yes, that is the sort of quality you can expect as we talk about Oscar Wilde's, which is uh, very appropriate because of um, all the wit that's on display in this very opening. Oscar Wilde's um, A Good Woman. But first, when we last left Scarlet, she was breathing life into the dower a love song for Bobby Long. Or as the bro Hansons may refer to it, a love song for Booby Side. Now, despite the fact that she had to battle both a gross John Travolta and a quite difficult to nail Southern accent, she delivered a strong dramatic performance replete with many, many recognizable Scarlet trademarks in a role that really led me to believe that she was truly back on form. So here we are still in 2004, and A Good Woman is a movie adaptation of Oscar Wilde's 1892 four-act comedy entitled Lady Windermere's Fan. Now, Scarlett is going to be playing Windermere. Uh, Her fan is an actual object, a fan for fanning oneself. Um, I guess as well, because she has some admirers in here, you could say that she also has some male fans in this whole thing as well. So Oscar Wilde, he likes to play with language uh, about as much as most of you guys like to play with yourselves. And um, look, it's about secrets, lies, and keeping one's reputation free from scandal, which roughly translates to a whole lot of upper-class boner dodging. Now, the major difference here is that instead of being set in the very rigid, strict Victorian England of the 1892 play, uh, this film has been reimagined to be set in 1930 and actually begins with New York, in New York, uh, home of uh, Cloverfield's Lokis and Ninja Turtles, which means that uh, Helen Hunt is playing an American as is Scarlett Johansson, even though we do not stick around New York for long, but we're going to get to that. Um, It's opened with a narration by Helen Hunt, unfortunately not the wonderful husky Scarlett voice that I always want to hear narrating. Uh, She hasn't done that for a while. It's actually Helen Hunt making a jizz joke right off the bat over the top of some footage of gossiping high society ladies. Uh, She says, some women bring happiness wherever they go, some whenever they go. I do both. 
Husbands like to see me come. Wives prefer to see me go. So Helen Hunt, here in a black dress, is obviously the object of much talk and scandal in New York City. And that's got to really mean something, because New Yorkers, they're not uh, worried about anything. You know, like a Ninja Turtle just rolls over the front of a cab. The taxi driver's just going to shrug his shoulders and go, Ah, it's New York! Forget about it! Apologize for that. But no, Helen Hunt, she's caused quite the uproar. Um, apparently, she's been ringing up a lot of debts, borrowing a lot of money from rich men, and basically just banging everyone. So she has to trade all her jewels for a ticket to get the fuck out of Dodge. So we quickly move to the Italian coast. And uh, while she's on a ship, just arriving at this beautiful coastline, she opens a magazine to see a picture of Scarlett Johansson, looking wonderful, looking radiant, uh, posing with some dandy, presumably in the society pages. Uh, Scarlett looks very wide-eyed and innocent, and Hunt is going to swoop on in. So um, it turns out we're actually we're on the coast of Italy in Amalfi. Um, you know, white buildings all sort of clustered by the sea, uh, kids shining shoes and sweeping up. And uh, we only have to wait four and a half minutes, thank God, before we see a very happy, um, epivescent, schweppivescent, uh, but demure scarlet. She's wearing a pale blue dress and matching hat. Uh, she's got white gloves. Remember, this is a period film. This is 1930. Uh, she's clasping a handbag to her chest and chatting away. And what she's actually saying is masked by music at this stage. We're, we're seeing her in a, a wide shot. Uh, and she's talking to this fussy-looking old lady who's clutching a mostly hairless dog. And I think Scarlett always looks really great in period costume. I think she has a very uh, classic movie star look, which works very well in this sense. I really loved her in The Man Who Wasn't There and how she looked in that. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing her in Hitchcock, even though I'm not looking forward to Hitchcock. And uh, she really looks stunning here. She's got short blonde curly hair sort of up above her shoulders. She just looks fantastic. And uh, the older lady, who uh, we find out is the Contessa, forces Scarlet towards a particular store and she protests. Now, we always talk about a first line of dialogue. This time it's Robert. Uh, which I guess is referring to a husband who's somewhere in a Amalfi. Um, not the most memorable of first lines, Robert. And she looks somewhat confused, to be honest. Uh, you know, an American in a strange land, all these strange uh, customs. She must be uh, just completely flipping out. There's shots then of Scarlet just looking at stuff. And uh, the silent Scarlet is something we see a lot in these films. And it's something that only a really engaging, um, enchanting movie star, I think, can really pull off. Just that idea of, it, you know, you're just enjoying, you're not even caring what she's looking at. You're just looking at her. I love looking at her, looking at stuff. You think um, I'm wrong? You think this is an easy thing that anybody could do it? Uh, okay, Vanessa Hudgens looking at stuff. You'd be looking at what she's looking at. You wouldn't be looking at her. Scarlet, you're looking at her. She is classic movie star, my friends. I promise. She looks amazing. And then this dude, this cad, comes in, this, this scoundrel, and asks her to try on a glove for him as she is his sister's size. Now, look, this rascal, this rapscallion, this jackanape is Lord Darlington. And he is clearly working some game on her. Um, you know, we don't believe that his sister exists and that he's glove shopping for her. Like, this is um, basically the 1930 of, uh, equivalent of saying... Um, you know, is there a mirror in your pants? Because I can see myself in them. It's that kind of vibe. And Scarlet instantly is very demure, very curt with him. She's obviously not comfortable um, with his advances. And then when the Contessa interrupts them by bringing in her husband, Robert Windermere, uh, she quickly goes to Robert and, and kisses him, which is something that continues to happen throughout this. We'll talk about that a lot, but whenever Robert's in there, she latches herself onto him straight away. There's uh, really that feeling of um, ownership uh, because like Mr. Windermere has his hand very tightly around her waist throughout this scene and, and also really sort of towers over her, making it very clear 
um, to Darlington, who's sort of poking around with his boner, uh, that she is very much, she belongs to Windermere and, and she's his and his alone. And uh, even in this setting, though, I feel that she's very much playing the shy, awkward outsider. Like, she's not comfortable amid the highfalutin fops, uh, and she's polite, but she really doesn't know where to look. And already, I think this character is very much in a familiar realm from sort of roles she's played in the past. I instantly actually thought of Girl with a Pearl Earring, although this is a lot more nuanced than that. I think it's a lot more subtle than that film. But that idea of sort of coming to this place, not really being comfortable by these um, more upper-class, wealthy people around you and, and not really knowing where to look, not knowing how you fit into this new social system. And um, she rarely plays the aggressor in films you know and i think she definitely tends to play quite coy when anyone takes a shine to her and that's certainly what's happening here uh her and her husband are looking for a holiday place somewhere they can stay while they're in amalfi and darlington hooks them up this will give him a chance no doubt to put on some more of his smooth moves so more Scarlet looking at things as she surveys their palatious new digs. Uh, again, she's very good at this. She's now wearing a yellowish dress, which makes her almost blend in with the walls. This is a uh, total stealth Scarlet. She's just ninjering around this place. She's a chameleon. Considering this is Oscar Wilde and we're expecting the dialogue to be pretty snappy, pretty witty, uh, the problem for me straight off the bat is that Scarlett really gets the straight part here. Like she has this line early on after she's looked at the house, she hugs her husband and she says, it's perfect, it's beautiful, it's everything I imagined. I feel like a princess in a fairy tale. And, and she does seem really sweet and bubbly and sincere. Like she's this gorgeous character. But knowing what we know of Scarlet, knowing the other sorts of roles that she's played, I really have trouble buying it. I almost sort of feel like this is someone playing a role because it's just not who she is, right? Like she's the sarcastic, cynical one. I just feel like she's never been a princess or more importantly, she's never dreamed of being a princess in her life. I think that's where the truth kind of lies with her persona. Um, you know, we've seen her a lot. She's the smoking rebel. What I mean smoking hot, I mean she's smoking cigarettes. And I'm beginning to realize more and more as I watch these films that Scarlett's really more James Dean than Audrey Hepburn. I mean, she's very much cast here as the ingenue. Although she's very good at it, and, and you know, you can believe that all these people fall in love with her. I just don't think it's the best fit. Not my personal favorite fit anyway. So um, now she's at a nighttime boat party. That's what these rich people do. She's wearing a black and white sparkling gown, uh, sort of playing dress up again. We're so used to seeing her in tomboyish clothes. This is kind of weird, even though she, you know, looks wonderful. Uh, it's Darlington's yacht. And um, Tom Wilkinson is there. How about that? And his name is Tuppy. Like, what is he? A pixie or something? Tuppy? And, you know, last time Tom Wilkinson appeared in a Scarlet movie, that was Pearl Earring, and he tried to rape her while she hung out the washing. So I hope she's really careful about, you know, around this guy and that this isn't actually a um, spiritual sequel, even though uh, I guess um, it happens sometime in the future, by like 100 years or something. Oh, but uh, Darlington... He ogles Scarlet from a distance. And this is great. This reminded me of Lost in Translation. She shoots one of her really wonderful looks at him. This is one of those, I'm noticing you across the room and you do kind of intrigue me. So it's a kind of awkward but welcoming smile which tapers into like a bit of a lip bite and then she looks away from him with that sort of just half smile just kind of lingering. It's just absolutely killer. The only problem for me is in the context of this story you, you read the materials about this film like synopsises and things and the idea is that um, Scarlett's character is very much a Puritan I mean this is all about keeping up appearances doing the right thing uh, she's quite conservative so as a being this conservative woman um, who has very strict moral guidelines, you would think that she would really show very little interest in this gentleman who has um, aggressively come onto her, even in the presence of her husband. Except 
Scarlett's performance here feels kind of a little bit flirty, a little bit interested. Uh, sort of, it, it reminds me of what she shot at Bill Murray in Lost in Translation. So it kind of puts this different spin on it. And this is going to be a problem throughout the film because it's not Victorian England. You know, these are Americans who we see as being pretty out there um, and outrageous and pretty free-spirited. So to imagine that they're um, terrified of all these social structures and terrified of scandal or of, um, you know, stepping a wrong foot anywhere, it's kind of difficult to latch onto. I never felt that um, any of these people were on the brink of social suicide. I actually began to read this as her being kind of interested in him, which I think uh, is certainly the opposite of what happens in the play and um, really isn't the intent right here either. But uh, we'll keep going and see what you think. Um, And Smitten Darlington, speaking of which, the cad, uh, approaches her while she sits bored outside. Again, she's always the outsider, always on the fringes, never quite get into these big scenes, always always works better one-on-one, and um, always works better with older men. That's something we've seen as well. And as he talks to her, tries to work his magic, of course, she's very shy. She spurns his compliments. Uh, she's, you know, being very naive, uh, almost quite childlike. And, um, you know, as I said, personal preference, she's very sweet and enchanting. I certainly prefer those roles where she's more feisty. It felt like a little bit of a um, waste for me here. And it actually reminded me of how much I enjoyed the man who wasn't there because, yes, they played up this sweet, innocent, naive object of desire at the beginning, but then that film was really able to stretch the character and give it quite an aggressive twist. Don't give up, though because this did surprise me as we we move on as well. And then, oh no, look, Helen Hunt swoops into a store. This is uh, the next day, swoops into a store like some kind of terrifying vulture uh, looking for bones to pick apart. And uh, sure enough, she tries to prey on Scarlet's husband, Mr. Windermere, and convinces him to buy her the titular fan. Of course, this movie isn't called Lady Windermere's Fan. It is called A Good Woman. But uh, this is the Windermere fan that the play refers to. It's a fancy fan. And what she's doing here is convincing him to buy it for his uh, partner. Her birthday is coming up. And I guess she's like, women get real sweaty, especially in these big dresses and things. She's going to need to fan herself down. Or everything's going to get gross. But the real twist is that uh, Helen Hunt manages to get Windermere, Scarlet's husband, to leave with her. Now that is very forward uh, in the terms of this uh, society, this play, this film, whatever it is. Uh, And then we have this really odd tone shift. Because as I've said, it hasn't felt very Oscar Wilde-like until now. But um, we've got this scene where we're sitting around a table, Darlington, uh, Contessa and Tuppy just basically chat by throwing all these Oscar Wilde witticisms around. I did get on the net and look at some Oscar Wilde quotes. And this film doesn't just pull from the particular play it's based on. It pulls from Oscar Wilde quotes all over the place. Totally cherry picks. And um, these lines are, are funny. And I think particularly the British actors are able to sell it quite well. Um, I like the commentary on America. One of them says, um, America is the only country that went from barbarism to decadence without civilization in between. That's really quite cool, but it's kind of these witticisms for witticism's sake. These scenes, and this happens throughout where you have mainly side characters, maybe older males trading, uh, these little quote a day calendar phrases. Um, they, they tend to just be sort of in between the actual plot and our main characters for the most part don't indulge in them so that makes it feel really weird now as well remember that this is a film not a play and I think when you hear phrases like that in their 
original intended setting, a play, you've got a very heightened performance. You have the actor coming out and bellowing uh, this line smugly at an appreciative crowd and pausing for them to all laugh and slap their thighs and high-five each other and go, oh, ho, ho, Oscar, you've done it again. Whereas this being a film, it's more realistic, it's more naturalised, the, the acting is not as heightened. So none of this stuff really can possibly have the impact that it would have in a live theatre environment. It's a really weird film that never quite settles on its tone. The only thing of real interest in this scene, in fact, is that it's revealed that Scarlet is without a mother. There is no mother in her life. That will be important later. See if you can guess why. Um, I bet you'll never get it in a billion years. Especially when there's only really uh, one other female character in the film. So, that night, a very stunning Scarlet in a white dressing gown is uh, playing sweet, naive and childish before climbing on top of her seemingly guilty husband who's uh, sitting on the bed. And you just think, as an audience member already, if he is seriously cheating on this radiant being with the hyena like Helen Hunt then he needs to be committed to some kind of institution or asylum and that was interesting as well like a voice is really quite high and childish in this it's definitely affected definitely doing something different to what she normally does but it you know just occasionally particularly when she's really like pushing what she's doing like um you know teasing him yelling at him that sort of thing it'll occasionally slip into that very recognizable deeper tone makes you appreciate how much you really enjoy her voice when it's settled in that natural uh place so um helen hunt the the rascal runs into scarlet in a dress shop and gets her opinion on this rather busty backless silvery gown and Scarlet's really a bit prudish about the whole thing causing Helen to really sort of um, taunt her. I just at this point wanted Scarlet to throw a bucket of water on her and, and just melt her and luckily Scarlet does manage to scurry out of there before she's put in a cage and uh, fattened up with gingerbread but uh, that's the sort of thing again this this weird tone because here she's playing very prudish like she talks about how her husband's very conservative and that she doesn't approve of the dress but then the scene before when she was in the bedroom she was actually the aggressor she was the one that was all over him and climbing all over him and kissing him she actually seems like a, a very sort of spirited free agent in those sequences but the script here is urging her to be uh, very sort of dour and pure um, and I think that's you know, it leaves you wondering what we're supposed to think about this character. And look, already here in Amalfi, just like they were in New York City, people are gossiping about the fact that Mr. Windermere is hanging out with Helen Hunt and that somebody has got to be bankrolling her fancy duds while poor old Scarlet, the wife, doesn't suspect a thing. So Scarlet is on the terrace. She's writing a letter when that horny bastard Darlington just sneaks right up on her. And what she's doing, she's making a menu for her upcoming birthday party. She wants lobster. Uh, I like watching her think about things. I like watching her write. I said last episode, I liked watching her read. I like watching her write. I just like watching her do simple things. And that is the mark of a fantastic movie star. She could bring out like instructional videos on YouTube. You know, this is how you change the tire. She wouldn't have to say much. You just do it. You just watch her. You take it all in. You'd love it. This is how to crochet a rug. I'll just watch those hands. Watch her face concentrating. Always an option if the rolls dry up. Darlington, he tries it on again. Uh, But Mr. Windermere turns up, the husband, and she once again very obediently attaches herself to him. So zero agency here. And um, considering that this is based on a play written by supposedly the wittiest motherfucker on earth, this film is just so listless at this point. The wild moments, as I said, they just feel like a completely different film. Occasionally the lines hit, I like this, you're so fond of gossip, you don't give the truth the time to put its pants on. But there's just not enough of it to ever get you into that sort of fast, snowballing, hilarious mood. More shopping? Scarlet is now shopping with Darlington. 
because he's supposed to be taking her to the club. Now, she does realize that he desperately wants to bang her, right? So why is she hanging out with him of her own free will without her husband during the day? Like, why doesn't she just run away? I thought she was supposed to be the prudish character. It seems like he's really winning her over. This I do not understand. And meanwhile, Mr. Windermere, the lying cheat, he visits Helen Hunt and gives her more money. But he's totally cagey about it all. He doesn't like lying to his wife. There is more to this than it seems, dear listener. And we're going to get to the bottom of it. We're going to uncover the truth. So, Scarlet is now on the beach walking with horny Darlington. And this time, she's holding onto his arm while they walk along. Like they're a couple. That was like a hand job in the 1930s. Like, what the hell is she doing? Her character is so unclear here. Let him go. Stop it. This is basically how gender works in this film. The older men are a witty, uh, smoking, drinking fops. Uh, the old women are all gossiping old ratbags. Helen Hunt is like a ravenous hyena. And poor, naive, oblivious Scarlet is like this gentle vision of perfection who wanders around not knowing what's going on while everybody else takes advantage of her innocence. It's really pretty though. Just saying. So, at the opera or some shit, I don't know what they did back in 1930, uh, they all badmouth Helen Hunt, except for Tuppy, Tom Wilkinson, brave old Tuppy, who goes down there, sees Helen Hunt, and takes a shot at her. Um, and Scarlet's his totes disapproving at this and talks about uh, this scandalous see-everything dress that she saw her trying on in the dress shop. And then Tuppy, though, he doesn't give a damn. I think he wants to see this dress for himself. He goes home with Helen Hunt. God save his soul. All the best, Tuppy. And have a bit of that tuppence. Scarlet's in the nightgown again. She keeps insisting to her husband that Helen Hunt is a dirty whore. And she doesn't want her to come to her birthday party either. She's like, don't you fucking dare invite that dirty whore Helen Hunt to my birthday party. But Windermere shuts her up with an early birthday present. He's like, hey, shush, baby, it's midnight. It's your birthday. Here we go. It's the titular fan. Now she can fan herself all over the friggin' place. She absolutely loves it. She kisses him as a reward. And uh, ah, she does this best little look into the eyes after the kiss, like she kisses. She's got her eyes closed while she kisses. She breaks away. As she breaks away, she kind of like opens her eyes and sort of has that moment of like, oh, hello, and looks at him and has this little smile, like a little signature. It's very goofy. Like, this is a thing. This isn't me going, oh, she's so sexy. I love her. Like, people think she's all crazy sexy. And yeah, she kind of is. But she's sexy in a really goofy, relatable way. Like, I think she's actually kind of awkward and quirky, but very wonderfully so. I I really like it. But, uh, you know, she has this unique quality. She's not just playing this fucking, like, um, blonde bombshell sex bomb character in anything, anything at all. This is episode 16. We've never seen her play... Okay, she was, like, six years old in some of those films, but we've never seen her play this blonde bombshell sex bomb kind of person. And I think uh, people stereotype her as that sometimes, but uh, it's not who she is, my friends. Tell them I told you that. Uncovered the truth. That's what I do. You know, it turns out as well, this birthday party is her 21st. Uh, So she's not that old still. And she uh, preps for the party while Darlington still tries very valiantly to stick his dick in her. Uh, And he gives her a golden bracelet and is awfully, awfully British at her. Very, oh, and I've got you this uh, sort of bracelet, and I just, absolutely, darling, I just sort of thought that, you know, maybe, well, actually, I just want to be, and, um, you know, like, God, he may as well have tried to put a dog collar on her. You know what I mean? It, again, it's about, like, branding, branding this poor girl and uh, sort of taking ownership, sort of showing that, uh, you know, she is in some way beholden to him. But, you know, she scurries off again before uh, he can seal the deal. And uh, she's trying to pay, this is Scarlet, trying to pay some party planner. And she grabs Robert Windermere's checkbook, her husband's checkbook, which is up in his office, only to discover that he's been laying out cash, some pretty hardcore cash too, to Helen fucking Hunt. Uh, you know, she wanted lobster for her birthday. Now she's worried that instead he's been 
spending money on some old clams. Her jaw just drops and she looks ready to cry. Now, this is great because this is the most the film has asked of her so far. And um, I wasn't expecting it. In fact, she's very teary and withdrawn in the next scene as the Contessa, who's really a comedy relief character, attempts to console her. And then it's here when she's upset, when she's kind of broken, when she throws away that sort of naive, innocent construct that we saw at the beginning, that her voice is deep and husky and scarlety through the tears. Like, this is the real Scarlet. Finally, we're cutting through all this sort of affected character, sort of, oh, I'm this girl in the 1930s stuff, and we're getting to the truth. So, um, Contessa, you know, the next day is prattling, well, I guess it's the same day, uh, prattles on as they walk through the town together. Uh, Scarlet, during this whole thing, while Contessa's blah, 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 uh, she compulsively wrestles with one of her gloves. Like, she's got one glove on, Michael Jackson style, and the other is off in her hands, and she just obsessively pulls at it and toys with it, scratches it up. Thought that was really interesting. We've talked before about this um, obsessive-compulsive kind of thing I've noticed where she picks up props, she plays with them, she molds them into different things. I think it's definitely a, a Scarlet trademark, and um, I'll be very surprised if we don't see more of it in the future. Windermere the prick, meets with Tuppy, the pixie, and he's like, dude, don't bring that Helen fucking Hunt to Scarlet's birthday party. She will spit chips, mate. She will go ape shit. She will hit the fucking roof. And Windermere then has to go and pull Helen Hunt aside himself. He has to go find her, pull her aside, and go, look, seriously, asking you politely, will you fuck off? Will you fuck off out of Italy and go back to New York and go fucking lift up a manhole and crawl into the sewer and live with Michelangelo for all I care? Get out of here! Get out of here, you cur! You mongrel! And then he spills the beans. Now, this is the real secret. You're not going to believe this. She is Meg. Meg is Scarlett. Scarlett Johansson. She is Scarlett Johansson's mother. And the money... That we thought was because uh, she was, like, prostituting herself out to, to Robert Windermere. No, not at all. They haven't had any sort of relations. He's been giving her money because it's blackmail money. Because of, you know, scandal and social standing. He thinks that, um, you know, if uh, Scarlet knew her mother was a whore, then everyone would think that she was a whore or something. I don't know. The movie doesn't make it very clear. I think this would have been more clear in the play because, as I said, that was Victorian England. And, you know, we'd go, all scandal and everything. But here, I don't know why it kind of matters. I mean, like, I would think a lot of people's mothers were whores. It's not great, but you, you got to get on with it, right? But no, apparently this is all enough of a problem uh, to mean that he's giving her money to shut up. And isn't this ironic? So after a film, uh, Bobby Long, where the twist was that a gross John Travolta turned out to be a father, now we have a follow-up film, uh, A Good Woman, where the twist is that a gross Helen Hunt is her mother. Both came out in 2004. It was the year of gross family reveals. Further irony, here's Scarlet pouting with the Contessa that every man and his dog has been in Helen Hunt's vagina, only to discover that she herself popped right out of the thing. Think about that. Draw a picture of it. Email it to me. But we should point out, Scarlet does not know. This is a private conversation at this point. She has no idea who her mother is. And she's still thinking, therefore, that her husband is a dirty cheat and a liar. Uh, and the Contessa tells her, look, don't cause a scene. Just shut up about it and go shopping. So off she goes to spend the absolute shit out of her husband's money. All right, heading to climax time, the birthday party begins, but Scarlet is crying alone in her room. I loved this. Everyone else is partying and being foppish and exchanging witticisms. She's in a dark room on the bed, curled up, crying to herself. It's so real in a movie that's full of affectation. This is the truth again. This really works. But then she has a change of heart and she starts to get ready. It's a shot of stockings being rolled onto thighs, a backless dress. She paints her fingernails red, only to put on gloves. That bit confused me. Shoes, shoes, feet. Feet slide into high heel shoes. 
and as she enters the party, just effectively silencing it, this vision of Scarlet entering this party just shuts everybody up. And these people like to talk. They like to talk more than I fucking do. You should hear some of this. She enters the party and she is wearing the scandalous booby dress. She's wearing it herself. And her husband, like, comes up and he's like, oh, shit, do you want to, like, can I cover you in a sheet or put you in a sack or something? And she's like, I saw the checks, dude. And then off she goes to mingle. So here is Scarlett Johansson looking just fantastic in this silvery cleavagey dress. Darlington sees her, he nearly trips over his own boner. Or actually, so he thinks, because it turns out he was looking at the back of Helen Hunt, who is also at the party and he's wearing the same dress. Who wore it better? I don't think we need like an internet poll to decide that. But look, it's just all a tangled mess. Which may be gripping if we cared remotely about any of these characters, uh, but we don't. I mean, we do have empathy for Scarlet, and because she brought the truth, I think that um, definitely she's the character that we want to see succeed and be happy. But I, you wouldn't, couldn't care less about anybody else. And even though all these farcical things are supposedly happening, you know, all these misunderstandings and this big sort of web where this person thinks this and this person thinks that but doesn't know this and they don't know that, it's still less gripping than an episode of um, Seinfeld or, or Faulty Towers. Like, look at Faulty Towers. That builds on that kind of um, comedy farce thing where... You know, the characters all have varying degrees of information and are trying to keep secrets or miscommunicating and things are getting worse and worse and snowballing. That works so well. And I have a feeling that if you were watching an original Oscar Wilde play, it would have that same kind of faulty towers energy of escalating stakes and the audience would have been laughing. But this is just slow and unengaging because we just don't care enough. So Scarlet ends up sitting alone at the party, pouting at this whole dress fiasco, this frock asco. And, you know, this isn't the first time we've seen her sitting alone while other people are partying. A man who wasn't there comes to mind. And then that creep Darlington, the horn dog, poonhound, he swoops in and just forces himself onto her face, latches on like some kind of alien slug, stealing a kiss from which she quickly flees. Seriously, uh, she just totally jiggles out of that place like Cinderella escaping from the ball. And he chases her, chases her down and continues to put his creep on. He just does not get it. He says he's loved her from the moment he saw her, which is roughly translated to he wanted to fuck her from the moment he saw her. I don't know how you could fall in love from, with someone just by looking at them um, you know he doesn't know what she's like he doesn't know if she's like a white supremacist or something right she could have wooden legs and smell like a raccoon but no he wants her to come with him leave tonight come and sail away with him on his bang boat and to her credit to an in- her integrity here even though things have gone wrong and she thinks her husband's a dirty cheat she refuses and uh, gets out of the situation again Alright, so, a quick break while more old men, you know, trade Oscar Wilde witticisms. And Tuppy, remember Tuppy? Fan favourite, Tuppy. All that Tuppy fan fiction all over the internet. Uh, He proposes to Helen Hunt. And, like, she really is the worst in this film. I'm sorry, Helen Hunt, but, like, Scarlet might not have much to do for the most part, but at least she does it with charm. Like, there's sadly nothing captivating about Hunt. Nothing charismatic, nothing about what she says or does that makes us believe that men are powerless against her and continue to throw themselves at her. I just do not understand that. And this whole film hinges on it. It's weird casting. But then Scarlet sees through a crack in the door that her husband, the cheating Windermere, or so she thinks, is writing Hunt another check. Now this is Scarlett's best scene here. Because we see her. This is the one reason to see the movie. No, don't even see the movie. Just look at this bit. And it's only brief. She's sitting there in the the dress, looking at her bleary, tear-stained face in the mirror. Like her makeup is running everywhere. 
She's swigging back the drink. She's obviously been crying. She's so upset, so heartbroken, but she also looks furious. She's focused. She's driven. She's having a decision. Like, it's amazing. It works. It's believable. It's truthful. You, you feel for her. She is elevating this character. She's taking this character on a journey that I wasn't expecting her to, and I love her for that. So, um, Hunt comes upstairs to clear the air with Scarlet, but Scarlet is gone and her room is wrecked. She leaves a note. She's left a letter, which is intended for her husband, but uh, Helen Hunt picks it up, snooping Helen Hunt, and it reveals that she's changed her mind. She's heading for the bang boat. Dear husband, I feel foolish and ashamed about your indiscretion. I am leaving you to take up a position on Lord Darlington's bang boat. Perhaps many positions, as I am plied with alcohol and have all my holes filled. But Helen Hunt decides, no, I'm going to keep the secret. I'm going to save this girl's reputation. Windermere, Robert, he comes up to apologize through the door. I'm so sorry, you know. But he doesn't realize it's Hunt on the other side of the door who's hearing all this, not his wife, who is headed for the bang boat. So, cut to the bang boat. And Scarlet reclines there in her dress on a lounge in the bang boat, broken, nervous, but determined, determined to do this. And like, as I said, good on her because she is really made the most out of all of this and she's made it work. Her reclining there in the dress, sort of, um, you know, not confident with her sexuality, sort of like, you know, trying to adjust herself and trying to almost build up the courage to go through with this is really wonderful work. She's got a character arc now. Uh, she's put in real emotion. She's made us feel something for her. This image of her reclining there is incredibly iconic. And just when we think that it's Darlington's boner that is bursting through the door, it turns out that it is Helen Hunt instead. She has entered the bang boat in order to clear the air and pull off this great cover-up to save Scarlet's innocence. But Scarlet, you know, she doesn't just take her direction, though. She's not like, oh, you know, thank you or anything. She actually fights her off and stands up to her like a champ. In fact, it, it could be getting aggressive. She could be about to, like, knock this woman out. But the drunken men, they all return. And, and Hunt quickly thinks fast. She hides Scarlet in this little room, uh, thereby hiding the secret that she betrayed her husband to come here and give herself to the charms of the bang boat. But just when you think they've all gotten away with it, all the drunk men are in the, the bang boat talking about stuff... Windermere, her husband, finds the fan and thinks if the fan is here, the birthday present, then Scarlet is also here and is going to be victim to the bang boat. But Helen Hunt pops up out of nowhere and she takes the fall claiming that, oh, I took the fan by mistake. I thought it was my fan. Uh, I'm so sorry. So Scarlet, while this is going on, she manages to sneakily escape like a ninja out the out of the, you know, probably dived into the water, swam to shore with a knife in her mouth like James Bond. And, and now it looks like uh, Helen Hunt was there because she said she left the fan. They all think that she's been banging Darlington. And now it looks like Tuppy was the one that was cheated on instead. And poor old Tuppy, isn't his face red? How do you think Tuppy feels about that? Devastated. So, next morning, a rather demure and silent Scarlet anxiously awaits her husband. And he turns up and he asks for forgiveness. I've been such a fool. And she hugs him and he lets her know, look, Tuppy's engagement is off. And now she's feeling a bit guilty about that too. Oh, poor old Tuppy. It's kind of her fault, right? I don't know if anyone's keeping up the plot anymore. Are you keeping up the plot? Am I explaining it okay? You should be drawing a diagram or something because this is crazy. So she goes off, Scarlet goes off to talk to Helen Hunt. Helen Hunt turns up at the house again uh, and, and Scarlet's all wrapped with guilt. But Helen says, look, keep it a secret. Don't be a dick about this. It's all happened. Keep it a secret. Don't let your husband know that you wanted to party on the bang boat. That's not good for your reputation. That's not good for anybody. And Hunt decides to keep her own secret, her own secret being that she is Scarlett Johansson's mother because she doesn't want to spoil Scarlet's innocent idea that her mother is this guardian angel figure who watches over her from afar. And uh, this means that Windermere, her husband, must also keep the secret about her mother. And Helen Hunt gives him back his check. I don't want your money anymore. I'm, gonna, I'm a good woman. 
Uh, she tears it up and off she fucks. So last time we see Scarlet in this film, we're in the bedroom and it's an overhead shot of the bed, white sheets, and she's naked. I mean, she's covered in a sheet, but we can see her naked shoulders. He's obviously naked too, even though he's covered in a sheet. And he's spooning her. She's facing away from him. Um, so their naked bodies are entwined. I thought that was quite unexpected. Even a little shocking considering the overall tone of this film. I mean, they're having quite a philosophical conversation about what's just happened. A conversation that could have just as easily been had on the terrace after breakfast but uh no he's clearly just been railing her it's like there's this weird sort of feeling here like she's sort of like the prize that he's won at the end and he's not a character that's been endearing not a character that we've even really gotten to know he's just been a character that's sort of fussed around and, and gotten nervous about all these misunderstandings and uh he ends up in bed with her and i think you know she's a puritan as well supposedly you think she'd be all straight up missionary with the lights off, but uh, no, like he's going her from behind. It's this weird sort of thing. And you realize that the object of fixation this whole time wasn't Mrs. Windermere's fan. It was Mrs. Windermere's fanny, British or American version. Either way, whatever you're into. We, we didn't see any of the, the prep. And uh, Hunt gets on a plane to leave to go and upset more people. But oh shit, Tuppy is there. You forgot about Tuppy, didn't you? But no, he's there. Scarlet apparently had told him to go to her. She'd made up a story as well. So it's all good in the hood. Everybody uh, got a girl. Um, unfortunately, we don't see Tuppy spooning uh, Helen Hunt on the plane. Um, everybody's uh, got their lady, got their treasured possession. Except, of course, for Darlington, who's going to have some very lonely nights by himself rocking that old bang boat. And uh, the other good news, though, is that Scarlett Johansson gets second billing at the end. Look, sucks to be billed behind Helen Hunt, but at least she's up there. And uh, I don't think uh, Helen could ever take that away from her again. So that is a good woman. Another film where I think that Scarlett Johansson really was the diamond in the rough. The, the rough being uh, Helen Hunt in this instance. And yeah, I'm biased. I know that. But I really do think Scarlett did the best job. And we've got some pretty fine actors in there. Like, you know, Tom Wilkinson. But Scarlett was the only one that brought some real emotion and made us give a shit about what was going on. Plus, uh, I think she's the only character that has any sort of arc. So, um, well done, Scarlet. You saved this one. You earned it. We can see uh, why you're the star. And that's one of those things as well. This is a great thing about real-life, iconic, proper movie stars that do have the sort of careers that she's already having, considering she's already like got 20 years of this uh, under her belt. It's that they can be in bad movies or average movies or whatever, and you don't blame them for it. You know what I mean? Like, you go, yeah, like, that movie was shit, but that person did a good job. Yeah? I mean, I think, like, Robert Downey Jr. can do that. There are people like, um... Fuck, even Bruce Willis or someone doesn't get blamed. You know what I mean? Like, Bruce Willis can be in all sorts of shit and people will, like, still keep casting him in things. John Goodman. There's a good one. There's a good man. Good example. How much shit have you seen John Goodman in? But you never went, that was shit because of John Goodman. You always, like, thought he was good. Right? You were like, that man, he's a good man. I like his chutzpah? Putzpah? I like his footspah. Okay, now, a bit of housekeeping. These are the things that we always wrap up the show with. Why was she cast? Or more importantly, why did she choose to do it? Look, I would have been interested in Oscar Wilde. Come on, he's, he's a witty guy. You think, oh yeah, this is going to be a barrel of laughs. But I, I think more importantly, uh, she's really stretching herself. I think, you know, even though we see familiar themes and familiar little trademarks in every role, she's not being typecast. She could have just been that MTV girl, for example, that we saw in A Perfect Score. But no, she's doing period pieces. She's doing quirky indie films. She's doing uh, big blockbusters. She's doing so many different types of films, putting herself in front of so many different audiences that, um, you know, it's really smart. Like you can't 
ever go, well, why did you do that? Because obviously all these steps have built her up to what she is now. So, uh, and, and why wouldn't you want to work with the legend that is uh, Helen Hunt? You'd have so much to talk about as well behind the scenes. Like, uh, what's uh, Paul Reiser like? Next is Scarcabulary. What is the word or phrase that we learnt this episode that uh, will be added to the grand lexicon of Scarlet Science? You know, I think we're prone to use a lot of coarse words and coarse expressions on this show. And if Oscar Wilde taught us anything here, it's that we should uh, be a little more clever and classy and upper crust. Play with language. So I think our new phrase uh, is the euphemism, Lady Windermere's fan. As in, oh, you look tired. What time did you guys go home last night? We got back at one, but then I spent the rest of the time playing with Lady Windermere's fan. Oscar Girls Gone Wild. Also, we must look at Scarlet's three greatest feats. What are the three things we will most remember about her performance in this film? What was it that she accomplished? This time it's very straightforward. Number one, she looks fantastic in period costume. Number two, she communicated more with mere looks and body language than most of these actors did. With Oscar Wilde's witty words, Number three, spectacular sad drunk acting, which is very hard to do. They're all sensible ones this time, and I really meant it. And next time, next movie, God, talk about varying your choices and doing things that are completely different from one another. We are going to be watching, I'm so excited about this, the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. Can you believe that? You're thinking, what Scarlett Johansson isn't in that movie? Yes, she is. She plays, like, the daughter of the King of the Sea, I think. Like, this is her first voice role, and we all know that one of her greatest attributes is certainly her wonderful voice. So, I think this is going to be great. No more crazy dramas for me. We are going to that pineapple under the sea, and I am super excited about it. So, please... Join me for that. Thank you so much for listening to the show again. I really appreciate it. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. It's the only podcast I do that does not appear in the charts yet. I'd like to get it up there. Now I'd be up in those charts, all up in them. Also, listen to those other podcasts. The book was better and FPcast. Uh, go to the newly designed fruitlesspursuits.com to see all of them linked there. And also, if you're on Facebook and you want to join our discussion group, just search for any of the podcast names, ScarJoeAgogo, FPCast, or the Book Was Better podcast. You will find our group and we will chat with you. Thank you so much. Join me next week for some crazy Animated piracy. No. She starts off really small and then she grows, she grows, she grows, she grows. Let's see how far she goes. Scar Joe go go.